Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. In addition to this, and equally working against my faith, there was in me a deeply ingrained pessimism. A pessimism by that time much more of intellect than of temper. I was now by no means unhappy, but I had very definitely formed the opinion that the universe was, in the main, a rather regrettable institution. I am well aware that some will feel disgust and some will laugh at the idea of a loutish, well-fed boy in an eaten collar passing an unfavorable judgment on the cosmos. They may be right in either reaction, but no more right because I wore an eaten collar. They're forgetting what boyhood felt like from within. Dates are not so important as people believe. I fancy that most of those who think at all have done a great deal of their thinking in the first 14 years. As to the sources of my pessimism, the reader will remember that, though in many ways most fortunate, yet I had very early in life met a great dismay. But I am now inclined to think that the seeds of pessimism were sown before my mother's death. Ridiculous as it may sound, I believe that the clumsiness of my hands was at the root of the matter. How could this be? Not, certainly, that a child says, I can't cut a straight line with a pair of scissors, therefore the universe is evil. Childhood has no such power of generalization, and is not, to do it justice, so silly. Nor did my clumsiness produce what is ordinarily called an inferiority complex. I was not comparing myself with other boys. My defeats occurred in solitude. What they really bred in me was a deep, and of course inarticulate, sense of resistance or opposition on the part of inanimate things. Even that makes it too abstract and adult. Perhaps I had better call it a settled expectation that everything would do what you did not want it to do. Whatever you wanted to remain straight would bend. Whatever you tried to bend would remain firm. It is not possible to put it into language without making it comic, and I have indeed no wish to see it, now, except as something comic. But it is perhaps just these early experiences which are so fugitive and, to an adult, so grotesque that give the mind its earliest bias its habitual sense of what is or is not plausible. There was another predisposing factor. Though the son of a prosperous man, a man by our present tax-ridden standards almost incredibly comfortable and secure, I had heard, ever since I could remember and believed, that adult life was to be an unremitting struggle in which the best I could hope for was to avoid the workhouse by extreme exertion. My father's highly colored statements on such matters had sunk deeply into my mind, and I never thought to check them by the very obvious fact that most of the adults I actually knew seemed to be living very comfortable lives. I remember summing up what I took to be our destiny in conversation with my best friend at Chartres by the formula, term, holidays, term, holidays, till we leave school, and then work, work, work till we die. Even if I had been free from this delusion, I think I should still have seen grounds for pessimism. One's views, even at that age, are not wholly determined by one's own momentary situation. Even a boy can recognize that there is desert all round him, though he, for the nonce, sits in an oasis. I was, in my ineffective way, a tender-hearted creature. 
Perhaps the most murderous feelings I ever entertained were towards an undermaster at Chartres, who forbade me to give to a beggar at the school gate. Add to this that my early reading, not only Wells, but Sir Robert Ball, had lodged very firmly in my imagination the vastness and cold of space, the littleness of man. It is not strange that I should feel the universe to be a menacing and unfriendly place. Several years before I read Lucretius, I felt the force of his argument, and it is, surely, the strongest of all for atheism. Nequaquam nobis divinitis esse paratum, naturum rerum, tanta stat predita culpa. Had God designed the world, it would not be a world so frail and faulty as we see. You may ask how I combine this directly atheistical thought, this great argument from undesign, with my occultist fancies. I do not think I achieved any logical connection between them. They swayed me in different moods, and had only this in common, that both made against Christianity. And so, little by little, with fluctuations which I cannot now trace, I became an apostate, dropping my faith with no sense of loss, but with the greatest relief. My stay at Chartres lasted from the spring term of 1911 till the end of the summer term 1913, and, as I have said, I cannot give an accurate chronology between those dates of my slow apostasy. In other respects, the period is divided into two, about halfway through it a much-loved undermaster and the even more-loved matron left at the same time. From that day onwards there was a sharp decline, not, indeed, in apparent happiness, but in solid good. Dear Miss C. had been the occasion of much good to me as well as of evil. For one thing, by awakening my affections, she had done something to defeat that anti-sentimental inhibition which my early experience had bred in me. Nor would I deny that in all her higher thought, disastrous though its main effect on me was, there were elements of real and disinterested spirituality by which I benefited. Unfortunately, once her presence was withdrawn, the good effects withered and the bad ones remained. The change of masters was even more obviously for the worse. Sirah, as we called him, had been an admirable influence. He was what I would now describe as a wise madcap, a boisterous, boyish, hearty man, well able to keep his authority while yet mixing with us almost as one of ourselves, an untidy, rollicking man without a particle of affectation. He communicated, what I very much needed, a sense of the gusto with which life ought, wherever possible, to be taken. I fancy it was on a run with him in the sleet that I first discovered how bad weather is to be treated, as a rough joke, a romp. He was succeeded by a young gentleman just down from the university whom we may call Pogo. Pogo was a very minor edition of a sake, perhaps even a woodhouse hero. Pogo was a wit. Pogo was a dressy man. Pogo was a man about town. Pogo was even a lad. After a week or so of hesitation, for his temper was uncertain, we fell at his feet and adored. Here was sophistication, glossy all over, and, dared one believe it, ready to impart sophistication to us. We became, at least I became, dressy. It was the age of the canute of spread ties with pins in them, of very low-cut coats and trousers worn very high to show startling socks, 
and brogue shoes with immensely wide laces. Something of all this had already trickled to me from the college through my brother, who was now becoming sufficiently senior to aspire to canutery. Pogo completed the process. A more pitiful ambition for a lout of an overgrown 14-year-old with a shilling-a-week pocket money could hardly be imagined. The more so since I am one of those on whom nature has laid the doom that whatever they buy and whatever they wear, they will always look as if they had come out of an old clothes shop. I cannot even now remember without embarrassment the concern that I then felt about pressing my trousers and, filthy habit, plastering my hair with oil. A new element had entered my life. Vulgarity. Up till now I had committed nearly every other sin and folly within my power, but I had not yet been flashy. These hobbledehoy fineries were, however, only a small part of our new sophistication. Pogo was a great theatrical authority. We soon knew all the latest songs. We soon knew all about the famous actresses of that age, Lily Elsie, Gertie Miller, Zena Dare. Pogo was a fund of information about their private lives. We learned from him all the latest jokes. Where we did not understand, he was ready to give us help. He explained many things. After a term of Pogo's society, one had the feeling of being not twelve weeks, but twelve years older. How gratifying, and how edifying it would be, if I could trace to Pogo all my slips from virtue, and wind up by pointing the moral. How much harm a loose-talking young man can do to innocent boys. Unfortunately, this would be false. It is quite true that at this time I underwent a violent and wholly successful assault of sexual temptation. But this is amply accounted for by the age I had then reached, and by my recent, in a sense my deliberate, withdrawal of myself from divine protection. I do not believe Pogo had anything to do with it. The mere facts of generation I had learned long ago, from another boy, when I was too young to feel much more than a scientific interest in them. What attacked me through Pogo was not the flesh, I had that of my own, but the world. The desire for glitter, swagger, distinction, the desire to be in the know. He gave little help, if any, in destroying my chastity, but he made sad work of certain humble and childlike and self-forgetful qualities which, I think, had remained with me till that moment. I began to labor very hard to make myself into a fop, a cad, and a snob. Pogo's communications, however much they helped to vulgarize my mind, had no such electric effect on my senses as the dancing mistress, nor as Becker's charicles, which was given me for a prize. I never thought the dancing mistress as beautiful as my cousin G, but she was the first woman I ever looked upon to lust after, assuredly through no fault of her own. A gesture, a tone of the voice may in these matters have unpredictable results. When the schoolroom on the last night of the winter term was decorated for a dance, she paused, lifted a flag, and, remarking, I love the smell of bunting, pressed it to her face, and I was undone. You must not suppose that this was a romantic passion. The passion of my life, as the next chapter will show, belonged to a wholly different region. What I felt for the dancing mistress was sheer appetite, the prose and not the poetry of the flesh. I did not feel at all like a knight devoting himself to a lady. I was much more like a Turk looking at a Circassian whom he could not afford to buy. 
I knew quite well what I wanted. It is common, by the way, to assume that such an experience produces a feeling of guilt, but it did not do so in me. And I may as well say here that the feeling of guilt, save where a moral offense happened also to break the code of honor, or had the consequences which excited my pity, was a thing which at that time I hardly knew. It took me as long to acquire inhibitions as others, they say, have taken to get rid of them. That is why I often find myself at such cross-purposes with the modern world. I have been a converted pagan, living among apostate Puritans. I would be sorry if the reader passed too harsh a judgment on Pogo. As I now see it, he was not too old to have charge of boys, but too young. He was only an adolescent himself, still immature enough to be delightedly grown up, and naive enough to enjoy our greater naivete. And there was a real friendliness in him. He was moved partly by that to tell us all he knew or thought he knew. And now, as Herodotus would say, goodbye to Pogo. Meanwhile, side by side with my loss of faith, of virtue, and of simplicity, something quite different was going on. It will demand a new chapter. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>